Goddard College Community Radio, 91.1 FM, WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hartwick, 91.7 FM, WGDR.org. The following program presents the opinion of its participants and producer. It does not reflect an official opinion of WGDR or its licensee, Goddard College. Living Hero, conversations with living luminaries and mavericks. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today's show is called Living Within Means. We'll be talking about how art relates to issues of sustainability and ecology. In 2009 and 2010, I was a guest speaker in two of Professor Jim Stoner's classes, Getting Green Done and Art and Sustainability. Professor Stoner teaches in Fordham University's Graduate School of Management. He is a professor of management systems and is actually Fordham's chair of global quality leadership. He's author of numerous books and travels internationally to teach others about how to educate for global sustainability. He is interested in both personal and organizational transformation. In Jim's classes, I was honored to present a talk that includes short clips of audio from Living Hero guests of the past. And this talk is called Living Within Means. I'm going to begin today's program by giving this very talk to you. And at the end of the talk, I'm going to put on some music and call Professor Stoner up to ask him to give us an update on the field of educating adults for global sustainability. And then we'll hear from Douglas Cohen, a youth educator and chair of Youth Intergenerational Partnerships for the organization U.S. Partnership. And that operates in connection with the U.N. and its decade of education for sustainable development. And he is involved in numerous national and international initiatives along these lines. I'm sure he'll tell us about some of them. But first, I invite you to join me for Living Within Means. Seems to me like they want us to be afraid, man. This talk is about how art and life relate and how we have stifled both art and life with truly grave consequences. Living Within Means refers to being truly alive inside, living within, sensitive, exuberant, enthusiastic, having a rich inner experience of life. And living within means is also about living within the means of the Earth's resources, its ability to renew itself and stay healthy, about not overspending, about not exceeding our fair share of the Earth's resources to the detriment of all. I'm going to use a few metaphors in the course of this talk, and one is this little story. One time, I was with a friend of mine who is a pilot, and we were in his small, unpressurized little tail dragger of a plane right at Mount McKinley in Alaska. And we were going higher and higher up the side of the mountain in this plane. At a certain altitude, I started to experience a very anxious feeling that I'd never known before. 
the lack of oxygen had me really with that climbing the walls feeling. And I asked my friend to please hurry up and take the plane down. This is a metaphor for where we are as a society. Up the side of that mountain in that little plane. According to Dr. Ralph Keeling of the Scripps Institute, we are losing three oxygen molecules in our atmosphere for every carbon dioxide molecule that is produced when we burn fossil fuels. We are living beyond our means and beyond our healthy altitude. Living within, in the other sense, is the antidote for this. This is what takes us down to our rightful level, grounds us. Living within means that we are going to need a major reevaluation and also a major detox. What's known as the carrying capacity of the earth was exceeded in the late 1970s, and we are in what's called overshoot. The amount of living greenery, the phytoplankton in the seas, the trees in the Amazon jungle that inhale carbon dioxide and exhale our elixir of life, our precious oxygen, the number one thing that we need to stay alive and the one thing that we cannot do without for even a few minutes is reducing in direct proportion with the overaccumulation of carbon. Hello? Hello? We don't have enough greenery to breathe in the carbon and transform it. Hello? The air has become supersaturated with carbon at an alarmingly increasing rate, and we keep pumping more and more of it into the air, day and night, around the globe, with more cities springing up and more people being born to urban lives. Less and less is our air rich with the oxygen. We need to feel satisfied and fulfilled and relaxed as bodily beings. And more and more machinery just keeps on running. And it doesn't run by itself. People keep turning it on and running it. We have got to come down from our dizzying heights. Since 1970, the total human load on the natural environment has increased between sevenfold and tenfold. And if our activities go on unabated, it will increase another seven to tenfold again by 2050. This involves land, oceans, and air. Ever seen what a fish tank without adequate filtration looks like as the fish continue to fill the water with their own excrement? The land, the oceans, and the air are collecting our excrement. We are living beyond our means to deal with our own waste matter. And that is what could be said of any dying being. We are looking at imminent collapse of ecosystems, including those of our own bodies. And what concerns me most is that the really big hello here is going to be that we have done too little, too late, and we will be like bloated fish in a cloudy tank, sick, going belly up, our gills choking 
because the reality of what these minds and bodies really need was not looked after. Okay, what can art do? What can art do about this? Well, art is the very thing that can help us now. It is our medicine. It is detoxification for what ails us. Here's how. Art gives form to meaning and feeling. It helps us see. It brings insight into non-ordinary states of consciousness and the deeper realities that the human being can access when fully alive. The creative mind that is, the mind that is agile and open and flexible, that forges new neural pathways. Artists are the pioneers of the mind, bringing in new ideas. Art and creative work also touches our emotions. It provides opportunities for empathy, the sharing of human feeling, even among people who have never met. Art brings respite from isolation and provides a much-needed sense of shared humanity, of solidarity and intimate connection, a brotherhood and sisterhood of belonging here together. It reawakens a tenderness for life. It brings an enlivening, healing, and healthy set of pleasures that are generated through all of the above. Let's look more closely at what art is, how it works, and why it's a healing force that can specifically address what's lacking in our lives right now. There are many, many forms of art and creativity, and yet all art is composition. Whether it's dance, theater, film, two-dimensional art, three-dimensional art, music, Fiction, poetry, architecture, even flower arranging and culinary arts. These are all forms of composition. And please know that composition is all about relationships of parts to each other and to a coherent whole. There is no part that does not contribute to the whole or the work of art does not deserve that name. Whether you compose or you are the receiver of the composition, art requires activation of our deep literacy in the language of relationships, patterns, and rhythms in time and space as they contribute to a gestalt of meaning and feeling, which, if effective, conveys a reality that is both cathartic and transcendent for both the artist and for the attuned and sensitive receiver of the art. It can bring us a rare experience called epiphany when meaning and feeling come together. This is a very profound method of communication that involves mind, body, and heart all at once. Composition is a language of sensitivity and subtlety. It's a vehicle that takes us down into our inner world where we truly live. A code of nuances takes us there, and these are translated between artist and audience. And we are not fully alive inside without this activation of our capacity to communicate through the codes of metaphor. 
These capacities are so terribly undervalued and stunted in the population at large now. Our human pattern-seeing, pattern-sensing, pattern-generating capacities have been ritually suppressed and truncated in the compulsory school system and in our workplaces in industrial society. Living within becomes more and more suppressed and suffocated at the very time that we have so much emotion and deep concern about what is going on in our world to metabolize and to communicate. And you see, art is not a solitary thing, even though it is created often in long periods of solitude. Because the art does not actually happen until the feeling encoded by the artist is decoded, reconstituted in the receiver, and thus shared. That is where the art is, in the communion. That is where art happens. So we as artists need audiences and viewers who are alive inside too, who are attuned to what's encoded in these patterns and correspondences, to coherent wholes that speak feeling and meaning. Audiences who are sensitive, literate, and introspective, or else it's like putting pictures in front of cows. Art happens when we are being alive and sensitive together, enough so to speak this language of what life is really like for us, what we really grapple with, our emotions, our mortality, our not knowing what to do. This is what being human is really all about, self-awareness, truth, imagination, intimacy, and our ability to understand one another and to care. This is what it is to be effectively living within the human experience. With our global problems now, we need to reconsider everything about how we think and what we do. There's a buzzword out there now that means thinking about our thinking, reconsidering how we are thinking, and that's metacognition. This level of consideration is heartily fostered by art because art calls upon us to examine our thinking and consider with feeling what has been created and what it means to us. It asks us to viscerally experience the art and to stretch our minds to see more of what the work of art might have encoded for us to comprehend with both our mind and our heart engaged. Is this not critical now, as we must face a full frontal self-confrontation about our way of life, or else choke on our own ignorance? What are we thinking? What are we doing? Where are we coming from? What is good and true? What is worthwhile and beautiful? How do things relate? What's the underlying worldview and meaning and consciousness behind our social circumstances and choices? Have a listen now to a short clip from one of the Living Hero guests, Morris Berman, and what he says about paradigms of virtue in America. The shift from a uh, definition of virtue that was very European and very organic and very futile in a certain way, that 
virtue is things you do to improve the community. And a virtuous person is seen as somebody who contributes to the community. And by the end of the 1790s, and in many ways that's what the election of Jefferson in 1800 really was about, that conflict, and the triumph of a different model, the Jeffersonian Republican model, was that virtue is not at all service to the community. Virtue is personal success in an opportunistic environment that you provide for yourself and your family, and by doing that, you're virtuous. We now are living with the results of that shift of definition. Finally, if virtue really is simply about competition, what do you think the end point of that is going to be? Now, what if we were to encourage each generation to reevaluate, reimagine, redesign, rework, reframe society to reflect that generation's evolving view? This kind of creativity and innovation in society would be stabilized by virtue, beauty, and truth that comes at the same time. You see, the common ground between art and ecology is aesthetics. Why? Aesthetic means to be sensitive, especially sensitive to beauty, including the beauties of nature and of life. You see, the opposite of aesthetic is anesthetized, insensitive, unresponsive, and therefore irresponsible. When we're less alive inside, we are irresponsible, out of touch. Creativity is natural and responsive like a seed, and like a seed, subject to conditions. It requires a conducive environment, time, space, and passive receptivity, allowing, letting go, releasing inhibitions, thereby courting the unknown, reawakening imagination. In this way, metaphorical capacity grows, in these conditions, we communicate most truthfully and best through the vehicles of metaphor, analogy, allegory, story. Let's consciously engage in reawakening in ourselves the non-rational, our sensitivities, our empathy, our metaphorical minds. This goes hand in hand with reawakening our imaginations. Empathy requires imagination. You are sensitive to a horse and can draw or paint that horse because you can imagine what it is like to be in the skin of that horse, to let your breath out through those big, soft nostrils, to move like the horse and put your nose down to the earth and smell it, to tug the grass out with your big, strong teeth. So sensitivity, imagination, and empathy all go together. And these are the very aspects of our being, thwarted, devalued, minimized, and deadened in our educational and economic system now. This is perhaps because if you were encouraged to be whole, original, and autonomous, you would not be interested in doing 
or willing to do what this system needs you to do to perpetuate itself, to keep it all going. Listen to what clinical psychologist Scott Baum says about catharsis and healing and why it is threatening to the social system we live in now. The safe, constructive expression of feeling. This is truly cathartic or cathartic in the traditional Greek sense of a powerful emotional experience which leads to a new integration. And while the new integrations are sometimes microscopic in a literal sense that a small sediment of experience is laid down and that even some people will talk about at a cellular level there's change taking place in them. And why is that threatening? That's threatening because the person who comes out of that experience is autonomous. Rest's idea that, that pleasure frees people is predicated on the notion that when people are in charge of their own pleasure in the sense of being connected to goodness and what's right and meaningful, it's very hard to tell them what to do. It's very hard to tell them what's real. It's very hard to persuade or manipulate or cajole them into being who some authority or a parent or a spouse or even a child needs or wants them to be when it's not congruent with who the person actually is. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about empowerment and how important that is and how we believe that people should be empowered and believe that people should be self-determinative. But it turns out that when people are actually that way, they can really be a pain in the ass. They want to have their say, they want to be respected, they want to be listened to, they want to be collaborated with, they want to be included in the process. We don't really have a society that's structured for that. And so what's being sacrificed is both your literal and your metaphorical oxygen. That which lets you breathe deep and be comfortable in yourself. So now to heal, to get ourselves back, to regain our imaginative health and power, our warm and melting hearts, to bring out our defiance against insensitive social demands, we have to foster whole brain integration. This is imperative. Holistic thinking is necessary now. We've got to love those metaphors. To filter and restore the waters of the filthy fish tank, to take the plane down to earth. This means balancing out the overweighted left brain skills of sequence, logic, polemical argument, and bringing up the right brain capacities of pattern seeing, pattern sensing, intuition, gestalt grokking of the big picture, getting the overall feel of things and expressing them all of one piece through excellent, apt metaphors. Exercise these capacities. Build this into your days. All of art is composition. To live life as art. Compose yourself. Compose yourself. Have the parts of your life all interrelate beautifully with the whole of your being 
as a true and beautiful expression that reflects and represents your vision, values, and virtue. The fundamental values of artists are the values our society needs to adopt so that we can bring the plane down and clean up the fish tank. The values of artists are these. A rich inner life, time for reflection, exploration, freedom, originality, autonomy, examination and consideration, quiet, meaning-oriented activity, subtlety, sensitivity, awakened and refined sensibilities. Also the practice of resourcefulness, invention and thrift, beauty and balance, quality over quantity, handmade things, to be one's own highest authority based on trust of one's own instincts and relationship to life and the sense of what's right. Confidence based on direct knowledge experiences, intuition, reflection, living the examined life, and a unity of work and life. The great city planner, designer, and artist Paolo Solieri, the creator of the Arcosante community in New Mexico, once said that pioneering means non-professionalism. We are in an unprecedented situation now, and what we do creatively and the efforts we make to communicate with each other, to allow ourselves to be moved, and to move each other to laughter, tears, and action, all of this needs to be in the spirit of the amateur, because the root of that word is ama, which means love. We must do all of this for the love of it, and spend our time and our money, our capital resources, towards that love. Listen, friends, when you are living within, life is known as really a very touchy-feely erotic thing. It's also vulnerable, tender, and sentimental. We are mortal. All living things must have their lives end. So we have to stop being embarrassed to be human and to feel what we feel. Because right now, we're addicts in a big way in this society, running away from ourselves and our feelings, hooked and hung up. The evidence of multitudes of addicted people, addicted to all kinds of substances and behaviors, is really so very sad and concerning and horrifying. My name is Jari, and I'm a recovering American. My fellow Americans, the flesh and blood of a dead future is lodged between our teeth. We are cannibals of our children's children, monstrously devouring their lives and spoiling our own consciences. I've often told my son, you know, the most valuable thing that you can have as an adult human being is a clear conscience. Right when industrialism really started taking hold... The Spanish painter Francisco Goya painted right on the walls of his house a mythical painting of Saturn devouring his son. This is the way artists think and communicate, both metaphorically and prophetically. 200 species per day are disappearing from Earth from our ravenous plunder. We who live are all part of one living body, this Earth. 
Why do our government leaders keep talking about trying to reinvigorate our economy when it is time to take the plane down, to come down and to detoxify? As China rises, behold the new world hoarder. Meanwhile, it is made possible by our ruinous consumerism, our living vastly beyond our means, our stepping blithely off the cliff, whistling and looking skyward like the fool in the tarot deck. Artists are in the business of being true to themselves. Be an artist, talk with artists, support artists. There are many people living outside the mainstream pathology. Find them, study them, honor and emulate them. Artists and authors have always posed threats to the big Ds, the dominators, despots, dictators, and dumbfounders. It's not so much what we do, but what we will not do. A healing and detoxification process involves the catharsis of expressing authentic feeling in safety. Then can emerge a person who has personal authority, who is living within, who does not follow orders that go against his or her conscience. I'd like to end with a quotation from the great Russian literary critic M.M. Bakhtin from his short essay, Art and Answerability. And this touched me so much early in my life when I first read it. He says, it is certainly easier to create without answering for life and easier to live without any consideration for art. Art and life are not one but they must become one in myself, in the unity of my answerability. Thank you. And we're going to take a short break here and come back to talk with Professor Jim Stoner and with Doug Cohen. Stay with us. Living Hero. Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. Living Hero. Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. Welcome back to Living Hero. Conversations with Living Luminaries and Mavericks. We are here each week to talk with those local, regional, national, and international artists, researchers, activists, authors, healers, wisdom figures, and heroic individuals of all kinds who are working for the greater good. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I want you to explore and celebrate with me what it means to be a living hero in our times. We are drawing the connections between psyche and society, between our innermost experience and the large-scale geopolitical reality we all share. We are looking at what conscientious individuals and groups are doing to take a more holistic view and to usher in more wholesome ways of living and structuring societies. So get the big picture, draw connections, repair neural synapses with interviews, essays, music, spoken word, audio collages, panel discussions, listener participation. This is independently produced, listener-supported radio created in the public interest.
Good morning, Jim. You there? Yes, I am. Good morning. Good morning. So good to be in touch with you again. Oh, it's been a bit too long. Well, you get around quite a lot to various conferences related to global sustainability and educating for that. And so I wonder if you could share with me in the audience, um, what's the latest? What has impressed you the most in recent days uh, in terms of what's going on? What's the good news and the bad news? Um, well, the, the bad news is that we waited to an awful long time and things are steadily getting worse. The good news is that as things steadily get worse, people are starting to realize that we've got a big problem. And um, even some of the uh, folks funded in denial of climate change and global unsustainability are starting to turn, turn around and realize that we and admit that we have, uh, have to start doing something soon. The, um, what's going on particularly, I think, three things occur to me. Um, one is the Academy of Management. I'm an academic. I'm a professor at Fordham University at the Graduate School of Business there and the business schools in general at Fordham. Um, the Academy of Management, which is the group that gets together, the institution that gets together, um, thousands of academics uh, once a year in the summer, uh, is, has its theme this year is capitalism in question. And there'll be many, many really excellent sessions starting to ask fundamental questions about uh, the system we have that's destroying the planet and destroying our lives so effectively. So that's pretty challenging, pretty exciting for the academics to do that. A couple of years ago, the, uh, the theme was on, on going green in effect of uh, sustain, global sustainability also. So um, there's a significant amount of academic growing interest. There's always been leaders for 20 or 30 years or so in academia have alerted us to this problem. G Jim, um, do you want to give us a little preview of some of the things that you would like to say at that time, at when that when you can have those conversations? Um, well, I've, I'll probably be in a couple of sessions on it. Uh, I've been trying to put together fairly simply um, what what I think is going on and what I what I have to say. Um, the uh, the framework I use is uh, what so so what and now what uh, one that um, that others and I picked up at uh, doing the. Uh, training, landmark education training, the Warner Earhart Association training. Um, I think I'll, I'll do three items for each one uh, very briefly. Uh, one is population. Uh, and I wonder what's so. Uh, we just, uh, the 7 billion of us, 7.097, I think, today, billion of us uh, on this planet, and the planet can't handle that many folks. Um, the um, second major area uh, is um, I'm sorry. I'm probably shortening this too much. Under under population, there's population and the way we produce and consume and the patterns we have there and, and the capacity of the planet to, to yield all that. So population drives a big hunk of our problem. Yeah. The weather and, and climate change, as you mentioned in your um, opening of this session, driven by the CO2, the, the warming and um, of the planet in general. And, and then the climate change, the unpredictability, the uh, tornadoes, probably will turn out that tornadoes are um, increased by um, 
the, the climate change that's going on. I don't think we know that for sure, but it looks pretty. Looks like we're going to know in a while that the hurricanes and the tornadoes are also being driven, the severe storms, by climate change. And then the whole ecological systems that you mentioned uh, that are, are wearing out, that are stressed, the potable water, the seawater, the rivers, the lakes, the aquifers, what's happening to our coral reefs, farmland, rainforests, species extinction, just the whole ecological support system that we're wearing out. Yeah. So that's, what's, that's what's so. We're, we're, in, we're in deep doo-doo. We have a lot of problems. Right. And, and they're very serious problems. And then so what? I, when I think about so what, I like to use Isabel Reminosi's model. Who, she studied uh, people who made a real commitment in their work uh, that they didn't have to make. It wasn't in their um, job description to, uh, to moving us towards a more sustainable world. And she found that there was three steps in the process they went through. One was awareness, waking up to what, we, what we're facing. One was passion, a passion for taking action on doing something. And the third one was actually taking action and, and doing things. Um, now, um, three things in each of those, I think. I think I have three. Um, awareness, um, so what? Well, we really have a problem that I would really encourage people to visit the Six Americas study, if they haven't done that, from Yale and George Mason University, where uh, they look at how alert we are to our circumstance and find out there's an awful lot of people who just are in denial or ignoring or dismissing our, um, our situation. I would be an alarmist. Um, 13% of us are alarmed in the cir- circumstance. 26% are concerned. 29 are cautious, 29% are cautious. Well, maybe it's a problem, maybe it's not. Not too sure what I should do, yeah, 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 yeah. Then there's 6% that are disengaged, um, just not paying any attention. 15% that are denial, uh, are doubtful. And 10% who are dismissive. Uh, it goes from, very recently, a wonderful Colbert uh, uh, session talking about one of the uh, political leaders who and uh, who's basically been saying, no, it's not true, no, it's not true, no, it's not true. Oh, well, no, nothing we can do about it, just get used to it, meaning that nothing we can do about the disaster, the mess we're in. Um, the, um, I think the second thing under, under so what is our species is hard, hardwired not to worry about problems down the road. We are too busy, you know, we're hardwired to worry about the saber-toothed tiger whom I don't think we ever overlapped with, but it's a nice metaphor. Coming into our cave or coming too close to our cave and having to flee or fight right away. But what's going to happen in six months or a year or two years, and actually it's happening right now, is something that we don't worry about. We can't deal with that. Well, we're hardwired for immediate response and not for long-term thinking. One second, though. One second. Um, because... What about this, the, the societies that did look ahead to the seven generations? Is it because we are kept on such high alert? Um, isn't there still the possibility for, the human, for human societies to be geared to thinking ahead? I think we're working on that. And as you said, uh, many of the uh, close hunter-gatherer societies um, really did think about the future. And farmers think about the future. Uh, farm uh, industrial farms don't, but farmers do think about the future. It's not a little unfair about all industrial farms, I'm sure, but uh, but there is parts of our culture, and um, and and many of us worry about our children and grandchildren. Uh, so there is some definite thinking about 
something beyond my immediate gratification of what, what kind of car I drive, what, how big a house I can live in. There is some of that going on. And as you say, the wonderful seventh generation metaphor uh, is, uh, and in reality for that tribe, uh, it is the way some, some uh, cultures have lived their lives, thinking about the future and their children. In fact, um, one of the sad things, I think, is that uh, the American myth, which I think is, is considerably true, of immigrants coming to this country and making real sacrifices in their lives for their children and grandchildren, that really happened. Um, it's happening much less now. Now we've really, I, I love your um, uh, uh, comment about virtue and um, the shift into thinking too much about just business succeeding, succeeding in business and, and um, earning a good living for our children and ourselves, but also for, for immediate gratification of expecting really putting a lot of weight on what I want now and not thinking very much about even my own children, certainly thinking very little about other people's children. And that's basically generations. that's basically a very immature position. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, to go to the, back to awareness. Yes. Third point on awareness. Um, by the way, I just put these up a few minutes ago to try and get my mind clear. Um, the third one is a really silent generation. Um, those not yet born. And the voice is not heard. They, they, they're aware that they can't be here to be aware, and we're not aware of them. And also I put the global poor, what I put in there, that uh, both folks that aren't born yet and people, the couple billion people living in almost nothing every day, um, just don't have a, uh, a, a voice in the um, decisions we're making, the way the system runs. Okay, so, okay now I was doing um, awareness, passion, and action. And passion for action. I'm here. I'm going to speak only about my own personal situation here, things I'm close to. Okay. And because I think the listeners are, many of them are saying, you know, what can I do? Um, so I think about what what can I do? And and for me, I look opportunistically. Where is there an issue that I have maybe some leverage over, uh, and a position where I can do more rather than less about that issue? There's a great many things I have no leverage and no voice and no opportunity. But the, um, the three things I've um, decided to put most of my energy into are um, education, as you know, and particularly a, a group called the International Association of Jesuit Business Schools. And by the way, I, uh, I happen to teach a Jesuit business school for them, but I hurry to say that I'm actually not Jesuit, I'm not Catholic, so I'm kind of an outsider in terms of my commitment to this organization. But I'm committed to its commitment to global sustainability because I think it has a chance to be really powerful. Um, there's something like, well, there's 27, 28 Jesuit business schools in this country, and I don't know, an incredible number internationally total, like 150 or 60 or something like that. Um, and this organization did something, I think, that is bold and brilliant and unusual. About It does an annual conference called the World Forum. About five years ago, it committed that for 10 years, rather than the theme of the annual forum, it's a conference, rather than that being the flavor of the month, with each conference creator picking a theme and making that the theme, and next year it's a different theme, and the next year it's a different theme, they committed that for 10 years their theme would be leadership for global sustainability. And so for 10 years, this international conference and which influences and, in, and is influenced by an awful lot of business schools, has committed itself to, the, to working towards a more sustainable world in its papers and sessions and stuff. 
that I think is probably one of the more exciting things I've seen. Do you and, want to say anything? Uh, do you want to say anything about the program uh, for Fordham to be carbon neutral by 2020 that you spearheaded? Well, it's um, it's what appears at the end of my signature. Uh, how much progress we're making, I really don't want to <laughs> worry about too much. We've got till 2020, and I keep um, seeing now and then some interest in it. Fordham's doing some good stuff in sustainability, um, and. Um, some of that will move us in that direction, but uh, that I'm waiting for that uh, concept and approach to catch fire I and see. just keep putting it out there. Yeah. Um, but I wish we'd do a lot more in sustainability. Some of the other Jesuit business schools are way ahead of us, and some of the other uh, universities are way ahead of us. But we've made some uh, standard approaches, I think, in terms of getting more green. We have some some brilliant faculty members like Michael Pearson and, and Davenport and others and, and um, uh, Shari Lipsy, whom you met, Sharon Lipsy, whom you met, and John Holwitz, and Frank Werner, who's doing really good stuff in finance and global sustainability. So we got some very good folks doing good stuff. Um, but the Carbon Neutral 2020 is still waiting to get airborne, I think. No pun intended. Uh, yeah. Okay. So ca- carry on. You were you were doing awareness, passion, and action, and I'm not sure where yeah, so you I got were. I two more to go in passion, uh, and 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 passion is what again. It's what I'm involved in. It's not necessarily the best things. Um, I think the other area I'm really interested. Second area I'm really interested in is spiritual and religious leadership um, for global sustainability, and also financial education. Um, the um, the financial we'll take the first one spiritual and religious leadership um, the um, that's independent of the IA's uh, International Association of Jesuit Business Schools we have uh, in every every religious tradition I know every spiritual tradition I know there's something about substantive and deep about care of the planet care of other species care of uh, of our has capacity to support us, and yet we don't nearly have enough energy and commitment uh, from this enormous spiritual religious group all over the world everywhere to doing what needs to be done. Um, And so I think that's a place of a really exciting opportunity. Uh, For that, I'm involved in the Contemplative Alliance and uh, programs they've done uh, to uh, try and get us waking up to what we need to do. The, um, I guess the third, besides college and graduate students and grandchildren and stuff I'm, I'm focusing on, um, the um, other area that I'm fairly active in is working with Frank Werner and John Fullerton and others on um, the uh, trying to do something about the financial system that we're in, which is, um, as you know, not just creating enormous damage to people's immediate lives, but uh, is supporting the destruction of the planet. Uh, at, a, at a rapid rate, with a whole uh, mentality of uh, take, make, waste faster and faster. Yeah. And um, Richmond and the whole view of the world that uh, somehow or another, if the rich get a lot richer, then everybody's going to be better off. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's an area I'm inter- particularly interested in. And then finally, in, um, in action, in terms of action, uh, what do we do? Um, I said three things there also. Since I had three, I decided to have three. If I had four, I would have had four. Um, You're so organized. 
Yeah, one of the uh, that's a couple hours ago. I want you to know. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I've been thinking about it for a little while. Um, I think um, that the strongest statement about action I would make is that that we need to invest in, learn about, and discover soft technologies of individual, organizational, societal ch- change and transformation. Um, and the second second thing, I'll come back to the first one in a moment. Um, we do need more hard technologies. We need the hard technologies of better battery and, uh, and um, creation of uh, more efficient production processes, better consuming processes, uh, all kinds of stuff. Well, we need research, and, and that's fundamentally important. We need more and more. However, we know an awful lot about what needs to be done, and we're not doing very much of it. And the, the missing gap is that first one is the soft technologies of transformation. Uh, we've known for 20, 30 years, many of us have known for 20, uh, 20 I haven't known that long. I missed some opportunities to see this. Um, but many people have known for, for, for decades the things we could have done that keep, could have kept us from going past 350 parts per million in the CO2. We're up to 390 now. I'll read you a poem in a moment if you want. Well, uh, first um, I want to just ask you, I, I first, um, Jim, that, Jim. We need to do that. Jim, I just want to ask you to define for me and the audience what you mean by the soft technologies, if you would. Yep. I mean by soft technologies the, the processes we do to bring about change in ourselves and others. That's what I thought you meant. Yeah, I would think things like appreciative inquiry, they're great stuff. Uh, Case Western Reserve, David Cooper Ryder and his colleagues. Um, the um, uh, other personal change things, I did the S training and the Landmark Education Forum, which I thought were enormously powerful. Uh, and new stuff's coming out with Michael Jensen and Werner Earhart, et cetera, on leadership and change. Uh, so it's the, um, the stuff of, that gets uh, all the Ignatian principles, uh, St. Ignatius, uh, principles for uh, personal change and transformation, very powerful. Meditation, all those things. That's yeah. helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just, you know, it kind of rubs me the wrong way a little bit when people use the word technology in connection with psychospiritual development. Yeah. You know, it just seems like what we need to be moving towards, especially when we're speaking of these things, is a softer, more feminine, uh, more psychological and spiritual approach that the word technology, in a sense, continues to buy into the worldview that we need to move away from, especially when we're working on that inner life stuff. Yeah, many people will agree with you on that one, and even I have some, some bumps that way, but technology is a way of doing something. Okay. That's, that's what it is, but people think of it as hard and machine and stuff like that. But in 1984, 86, when Fordham made its deep commitment to quality management, by the way, my chair now is um, James A.F. Stoner Chair in Global Sustainability. Oh, good. Congratulations. Um, I heard the early part of the show there. I forgot to update you on that. It's okay. been like that for a few years. Okay, good. Yeah, that was a chair endowed by Brent Martini and Bob Martini, my my student and his dad, um, in my name, which is kind of cute, kind of neat to have a chair in your own name and be alive to sit in it. Yeah. Um, the, um, but we, we started talking about uh, management as a technology. And if you, look, if you um, look at things as technologies, you see things you don't, See if you look at them as art, which I've also looked at management as an art and as a science and as this and as that. So, I, yeah, I apologize for the word technology because <laughs> a lot of people feel that way, and I feel that way now and then. 
But of course, I went to MIT. <laughs> what can I say? Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So it's got to be not too bad a word from my side. You were branded early. Yeah. So, um, so I said down there under action, we need these technologies. We need the hard and the soft technologies. And uh, we also need to take advantage of the opportunities for collaborations that we have, the chances to work together in a great many ways. So right. now what? Right. You well, want, you um, want the poem now? I'd love the poem, and then um, our plan, if you're, if you're willing, I'd love to get Doug Cohen on the phone so That'd that all three of us could talk a bit, and then you can go, and he'll continue. Um, you know, but I'd l love it if you guys t talk together for a while first. Well, he'll be in, he should be very lively in the now-what side also, because exactly. he's doing a lot of good stuff to to move us in these directions. Exactly. So after your poem, I'll put on some music, and then I'll get Doug on the line, and we'll proceed. Okay, great. Um, this is the view from Academe, okay. as I see it. The 390-pound gorilla sits in the back of our classrooms, eating and belching and farting, ignored by ourselves, our students, our colleagues, our deans, and our presidents, as we keep our heads buried in the sand, seeking success in business as usual, ignoring the muffled pleas of our grandchildren and children and our hearts. That's beautiful. Did you write that, Jim? Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm really glad that you shared that this morning. It's completely in keeping with the whole show. So, uh, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to ask you to just hold the line. I'm going to put some music on here, and we'll resume at the top of the hour.
Welcome back, everyone. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio at 91.1 FM and 91.7 FM, and online streaming at WGDR.org and on Facebook. This is The Living Hero Show. I'm your host and producer, Jari Chevalier, and... The show's title today is Living Within Means. We have on the line both Professor Jim Stoner, who is the Chair of Global Sustainability in the, uh, the, the Graduate School of Management at Fordham University, and also Doug Cohen, who is a youth educator and leader. And I will ask Doug to introduce himself to us now. Good morning, Doug. Good morning. Good to be together. And hello, Jim. Hi, Doug. Good to hear from you. I've had a chance to reflect on my being able to partner with Jim Stoner as I've been listening to this show. And I had the good fortune of meeting Jim at a regional academy of management program. And 
just happened. I was on an international program of retreats going around the world to conduct retreats on gathering people who were consciously turning into the action, the, the third portion of what Jim was outlining of our response to the situation we're in as the human family. So we were taking action around the world with gathering change leaders and people dedicated to world betterment. So our uh, opportunity to work together came out of that cycle of time and uh, my thoughts about what Jim is doing with the Graduate School of Business in Fordham is a very much an expression of uh, the training and the values that I'm bringing to this movement, which is interdisciplinary attention to uh, multiple dimensions of society or different sectors at a time. So the, in the graduate program, he would bring in people from the arts and finance and spirituality and personal growth and collaboration programs. And I had a chance to do many of those with him, including bringing you, Jari, into the arts there. So now we're back together. Yes, that's exactly how I met Professor Stoner, through my friendship with Doug. So here we are. Nice to be with you guys. Um, Doug, why don't you uh, step in and talk a little bit about some of the recent things you've been doing, and then Jim can respond to those. Sure. Uh, I continue to work across sectors, and including in higher ed, having relationships with campuses that want to train both uh, students and staff and faculty in sustainability leadership. So bringing programs of self-development and leadership development for the sustainable future onto campuses, into community, and particularly with youth as the audience. So I've been about nine years directing a national campaign through a nonprofit called the U.S. Partnership for Education for Sustainability, which is a U.S. NGO that's part of uh, over 100 countries in the world that are part of the U.N. Decade of Education for Sustainable Development. So the campaign continues on campuses and in community and in partnering, in particular with partnering with uh, university presidents and community colleges and the facilities and even the endowments of universities to be more conscious about how they both move their campuses towards carbon neutrality, but also to divest themselves of the fossil fuel industries to the extent there's a student, very big student movement called Energy Action Coalition and others that are attempting to influence the trustees and the endowments of universities to reduce their uh, investments in, in fossil fuel production. And so this ties into what Jim's connection with this global Jesuit university uh, partnership and I want to just reinforce that uh, it, the example of this commitment that Jim was talking about, this is what we need to grow more of and cultivate around uh, in various sectors of society, commitment to the long-term thinking. So the Jesuit Schools Network, a 10-year commitment to global sustainability as a theme, is an example of a shift in thinking and acting towards those that are unborn and the future generations. So a lot of my work is around uh, focusing on youth and finding community programs and after-school programs and 
and campus-based programs to find those young people that want to be developed as change agents for our precious world. Now, not to be negative, but I wonder if we could just bring into this conversation, what are the obstacles that you both run into in this tremendously important and good work that you do? You want to take a first off? Well, I can take a stab at it and be very interested in Jim's response. Uh, my, one of my experiences about our overall cultural condition is what I call fragmentation of attention. Doug, you're, you're break, Doug, you're breaking up a little bit. I'm wondering if you can change your position or, or whatever's happening there with our phone connection. One of the obstacles. Is that better? Mm, no, you're, you're coming in uh, with, with some broken speech. Try one more time. Well, I'll try again. Okay, keep going. You can let me know. The yeah. obstacle that I start, I'm starting with is the idea of fragmentation of attention. That, as we know with school teachers, there are many, to get a new program instituted in a community or a, a school district, Doug, town or regional school. Doug, let me ask to, if we could redo the phone connection. I'm sorry, audience. Um, why don't I put some music on again, and I'm going to call you again, Doug. Please, please hold, Professor Stoner. Okay, we are back. Uh, Doug, I'm sorry for the interruption, but would you uh, be able to take us back where you were and pick up where you left off? Sure. Your question about what are the barriers to success with program development and getting these ideas about to, to develop citizens for global sustainability, very apt question. And some of the barriers that I work around is what I call fragmentation of attention. And so in organizational systems, in schools and after-school programs, to get the sustained attention of even an interested and committed person is one of the difficult challenges because people have so much on their plate and they have so many audiences to serve. Even if they, this theme catches their interest, uh, it's about their capacity 
put enough attention to the consistent planning and program development and carving out the time. So that's one of the barriers is an overall fragmentation of attention. And the, you see it in our media culture, the number of images and ideas that are competing for people's mind share is an, a genuine barrier to getting sustained attention to the sustainability action question. And I'll pause there. Okay, what do you think, Jim, are the, are the barriers you're seeing? Yeah, I really like Doug's phrase there and the concept that, that underlies it, the fragmentation of attention. I think he's right exactly on there. I, my, my three are um, the obstacles to teaching and learning in this domain are, one, it's just frightening. The implications of the facts are so frightening that getting into it can lead you to despair or can want you to turn your attention away very early or to go into denial or to go into we can't do anything. And so I think the, uh, the situation we're in is really, really scary. Um, and I think that causes a lot of people to want not to learn anything about it. Number two, I think close to fragmentation of attention, but very much in, in the same domain, is the pressures of business as usual. Uh, we've all got to shovel snow right now. We've got to uh, take care of our families. We've got to fix leaky pipes. We've got to, we've got to show up for work. We've got to prepare for class. We've got to you know, work out the budget for next term and hit the budget. So we, we just got a lot of stuff to do. And, um, and to add one more thing, something that we might have to make a real commitment to and do something about to that list is really, really overwhelming for most people. Um, and then finally, not too separate from the second, is just the me first career concerns we have. And, uh, what's in it for me? How can I, how can I move my career forward? Uh, this commitment to global sustainability, there are career opportunities there. It can help some people's careers, but it's also going to hurt other people's careers to make this commitment. Uh, it's going to give up your standard consulting assignment if you're uh, a consultant. Uh, learn to teach new stuff. Maybe give up courses that you love that um, that just aren't relevant anymore because it's just more important, and that's not going to help you. Maybe a little harder. It's harder, much harder, to publish good stuff and for academics and global sustainability than it is to publish the same old 23rd article and the 52nd footnote of Medigliani and Miller's article of 50 years ago. Um, so uh, it's um, it's just three big barriers, I think. And career is uh, a significant one. It, it takes a, a deep enough awareness and passion and commitment to be willing to make some career changes. A lot of people aren't willing to do that. Yeah. It requires such a time out, really, to uh, deal with the fragmentation of attention, which, you know, there are things that we can do, like long-term meditation and therapy and, you know, supportive workshops and weekend things, but that all takes time, sometimes travel, money, and so, you well, know... Let me say one thing positive, though. Yeah. These obstacles. The thing that I think is understated is that when you get into this game, when you start playing this game seriously, there are so many exciting people to be involved with. There are so many really wonderful people and great conversations. Uh, you, it's hard. If you, if, when you tell people you're involved in global sustainability, you're sitting on an airplane, which we shouldn't do because of all the carbon. <laughs> um, but when you start uh, talking to some people, are very interested in the topic. 
and uh, and you discover that their cousin is doing great stuff, or their daughter learned something in college. So they, it, it is a in many ways scary place to be because of where we're going, but it's a joyful it's a joyful journey right now because you meet such fascinating people and have such great conversations with them. So I think that's probably understated. You know, it's actually in my list of questions uh, for both of you to ask you to uh, share uh, a most stunning or exciting person or piece of knowledge that's come your way in recent days. What's sort of at the top of your mind and sort of vibrating in your system in terms of people you've met or things you've heard? I'll let Doug think about it for a moment. I, I'll have to think about it a little bit more, but I want to grab Doug's phrase, fragmentation of attention. I really like that a lot. It's that's great. That's the most exciting thing that's happened in the last hour or so. I'll, I'll use that one. So thank you, Doug. Now I'll try and You're welcome. And I can pick up on just where Jim today. left off about the joyful journey of fellowship and sisterhood in this work. Um, and, and can you hear me okay still? Yes, very good. Much better. So I have a contribution to that idea that I call the culture of the committed. So for as drastic as the state of the human family and the, what we've been doing to the planet for these last decades, there's an equal and robust response of, in the human culture of people who are paying attention, waking up, taking action individually and collectively. And I call these people the culture of the committed those who have gotten the fever, so to speak, and are daily driven by what can I do on behalf of a better world. And so I have even, uh, you know, for in thinking about yeah, joining you today, Jari, a story about a youth leader named Jade Green that has been a remarkable inspiration and role model for me, a youth who found herself unable to go to school after the tsunami in Southeast Asia those uh, six, seven years ago, eight years ago. And instead of going to school, she asked her mother's permission to go out and raise money on behalf of the victims of the tsunami. And this led her on a journey of citizen leadership action that has been going on for year after year after year. And Although she's just one person as an example, she is the most uh, self-developed and lack of need for outside recognition human that I've ever been around. She takes daily action on behalf of the needs of the world, and she doesn't have any need for being seen as the do-gooder, the living hero that she is in our eyes. She's just stepping one step in front of the other on behalf of repairing the world. So she's my inspiration. Very beautiful. Do you have uh, anything you'd like to share with us, um, Professor Stoner, or, or do you need to go? I heard somebody walking around. No, no, I'm fine on this side. I can stay on. Okay. Um, I love Doug's example. I think it's, it's really... There's, there are many like that, and that's, that's inspiring, and a lot of them are young. Um, I was just uh, walking around the house on my portable phone trying to find a book that just 
finally arrived from Amazon called The uh, Coming Interspiritual Age, I think. Um, one author is my friend Kurt Johnson, and the second author, I was trying to find a book so I could remember the second author, and I apologize. Kurt Johnson. I can't remember the second author at the moment. But um, it's a book I just got, haven't had a chance to look at, but Kurt's been doing some really exciting stuff with the Contemplative Alliance and, and other groups that want to leverage the spiritual capital we have, the spiritual opportunity we have to move us in a more sustainable world. And so getting a chance to read that book, I think, will be exciting for me. The other thing that came up is I came across, I, I, I love going to the Internet and seeing the really creative, artistic things that are done there. Anne Ann Leonard, everybody knows about Story of Stuff and Ann Leonard's wonderful stuff. Yeah. Um, but I just came across the Matrix cartoons very recently and just a couple of days ago. And... Um, they're, they're fun also, of making us aware of just what the whole food industry is doing to us right now, the industrial farms and our whole uh, food marketing uh, arrangements. Uh, so I think maybe The Matrix is one of the exciting ones, and Kurt's book is one of the exciting ones in the last three days. <laughs> so that's how my life is an exciting thing every day, it seems. Yeah, I got day. Kurt's book, too, and he's he's also a friend of mine. In fact, I think that's... How I met you, Doug, first was through the organization that that Kurt was involved in, and we all got involved in in New York. I never heard of the Matrix cartoon, though. I'm going to have to look that up. M e a t r i x, and it's a takeoff on the Matrix. And yeah, it's a series like four or five of them. They're quite cute. Okay, we'll check that out. It's very clever and worthwhile. You know, uh, back to what we were talking about before. It just seems to me that what we do need to do is create the new ways of of operating in all sectors of the society and then in a sense have that trapeze moment where we let go of the old ways of doing things that aren't working and catch that that new way but you know you guys and the students you're teaching are the ones who are building that which we need to to go to next, and I really appreciate what you're doing. Doug, do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, I know that you have stuff going on in Seattle and and some things, or is it Portland, sorry, Portland, Oregon, and also you're working on some things in New Mexico. Can you be specific about some of the programs you're, you're working on now? Sure. The uh I just want to offer the frame as uh, from what you were talking about. In our U.S. partnership, the national nonprofit I've been benefiting from the, the being in the team of, one of my friends helped us understand where you were just citing about going into what we call the new normal to create the citizen pathways for the sustainable future to become the new normal for how we operate, how we consume, how we take local action and become uh, – more you know day to day the shapers of a future culture of of health and sustainability in our own communities and and areas so that's where we're, all of these activities fall under the goal of creating that new normal and i continue to endeavor under the banner of this campaign that is called the inspired futures campaign and it the one of the themes of it is intergenerational partnering so it's bringing young people into relationship with adults and elders and community organizations and institutions. And so 
my work has long been about bridging the interior dimensions of human development, the experience of and sense of self from the inside out. So trying to uh, cultivate that in young people, a sense of identity from the inside out, and putting this sense of self to work applied on the world stage and as what we call citizen leaders. So whether it's local or global, a, a citizen movement is one of the, a, the activities that I'm doing in all of these settings that I bring uh, this work forward. And one of the organizations I work under the banner of is called TELUS out of Boston. That, and I, I co-direct the, the, this youth campaign with them on citizen le- leadership. It's a citizen's movement under their program called the Great Transition Initiative. And a lot of the work I do having with my psychology background has to do with what we call inquiry-driven learning. So it's about engaging in a living relationship with questions. So I want to bring forth a few of those questions. And one of the most powerful ethical and conscious questions we can ask ourselves is, who am I here on behalf of? And this gets us back to that cracking the self-interest of what Jim was talking about and people focused on their own careers or their own life path of, of uh, well, wellness just for themselves. How do we get past self-interest and crack open into being here on behalf of the needs of others? And it's to ask questions like that. Who am I here on behalf of? Which leads us to the identity question, well, who do I think I am? And where do I think I am? Who do I think I am goes to identity. And where do I think I am has to do with how do I understand myself in terms of my, literally, my geographical placement and my placement in time, in the the chain of time of the human experience. That has to do with where do I think I am. There's a spiritual organization in India that's spread around the world called the Brahma Kumaris. And that was a group that hosted these retreats that I mentioned earlier that I co-led around five continents. And the question that they ask is, what is the call of the time? Mm-hmm. So, to, so to develop as, uh, and to develop our young people and our leaders in our communities as citizens of a new future, we ask people to think about what is, call, is it being asked of me in these times? What is the call of the time? What are we being called to understand and to be and to act on in terms of our collective condition. And so I use these questions, who do I think I am and where do I think I am? And I want to offer this quote, one of my favorite quotes about doing the work of introducing these, this inquiry-based self-development in, with young people and adults is this idea that the future is here. It's just not widely distributed yet. The future is here, but not widely distributed. There's many, many examples of healthy culture and attention to both economic and ecological recovery and repair and and brilliant solutions that are going on. So we look at spreading the solutions that are working in various bioregions around the world, spreading those practices to other places. That's one of the more optimistic frames for the work in moving towards global sustainability is solution-seeking in bioregions. And my experience of the entire work of these nine years of my commitment to this kind of change agentry 
is a very simple discovery in every place I go. If you scratch a community, any human community that you run into, you scratch it and you will find creativity, ingenuity, commitment, cultural depth and richness. And all in around the work that I'm doing, when I get to know a group, it doesn't take long to create the conditions to find the talent in that group to be in that solution-seeking mode. But we continue to do that in all of the programs, whether it's in New Mexico, in Portland, in the greater New York area. Uh, uh, that's the map. Could you speak directly then to the issue of art and how art plays into your work? Well, a number of years ago, about six years ago, I stumbled into a new um, commitment, which is based on the, the belief that the arts and aesthetic belong at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end of everything. And so in programs that are educational and in leadership development and in green economic development programs, I bring poetry, music, movement, and a variety of artistic expression to nearly all of these programs. So having been moved myself by the non-rational, by the arts and aesthetics, and by the power of whether it's music or movement and drumming and singing together, we try to bring one or more of those elements into every academic program. So, for example, in a training of sustainability community leaders in Portland, before when people came into a, a room and it began to fill up, before there was even a welcome or hello, two people started reading a poem in uh, alternating, a male and a female voice alternated reading a poem, and the group came to attention through being brought into a Marge Piercy poem called To Be of Use. And so before they knew it, they were entranced in the, in the arts. And as the stanzas continued, the room went to silence and went to unity. And that was the opening of a leadership development training at Portland Community College in the Regional Innovation Forum. So putting the arts into the community development right from the get-go. So good to hear. Uh, we just have another minute or two, and I wanted to see if you wanted to say something, Jim, about art and what it's meant to you in your work. Gee, I, don't, um, I was thinking uh, how much I'd like to grab that idea that Doug had just mentioned in his particular group. Um, I don't know what to say there. Um, well, what I, about um, your course? I really like the work you did in my class in art um, and, and sustainability. I do find myself moved by paintings and, and music and po poetry a lot in that domain. I, I think I need to work on how I bring it more into what I'm doing more frequently. I don't do, I don't do enough of that. Well, listen, it has been such a great pleasure to talk with you both. And uh, I appreciate your coming on the program and sharing all of this with the listeners. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed listening to you and to Doug and listening to the program and being with you. So thank you. Thank Good you. to be together. Thank you. All right. Bye for now, guys. Bye.
that's it for today's Living Hero show. So glad you were here with us. Tune in each week, Saturday mornings from 9 to 10, Eastern at 91.1 in Plainfield and 91.7 in Hardwick, in beautiful north-central Vermont, and streaming streaming live wherever you are at wddr.org. Podcasts of all our shows are available at livinghero.com, on iTunes, and around the web. Subscribe to our RSS feed. Join us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Leave comments on the podcast page at livinghero.com. This is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Thanks for listening. Be well and see you next time.